Good morning, church family. Those of you in person and live streaming, good morning, good morning, good morning. I will be reading our scripture this morning, and it will be read from Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, through chapter 2, verse 4. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, through verse 2, chapter 2, verse 4. And if you have your pew Bible, if you could turn with me in your pew Bible to page 980, page 980, page 980. And again, I will be reading from the English Standard Version. You have your own version in your Bible or your personal device. We will be reading God's Word this morning. So take a moment to turn to that scripture. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Chapter 2. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. God's Word. God's Word. Good morning. It is good to be together. It is good to sing together. It's good to hear the electric guitar jamming together. It's good to clap together. We're glad you're here. We're in a series here in January called Growing in Grace. And our goal in this series is to help equip you with the tools that you and I need to grow in our faith this year. And the good news is that the Lord doesn't leave us searching. It's not mysterious to know how do we grow? How do we grow in grace? The Lord gives us uh, plenty to understand from His Word. Uh, you see, here's our vision as a church. Here's kind of what we want to be as a church. Our, our mission statement, is, part of it is there, is to bring glory to God by making fully devoted followers of Christ who passionately love God and people. That is what our mission is. That is the main thing. Uh, and as one of our former pastors used to say, our, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. So how do we do that? We do that by being a gospel-centered church where the gospel is at the center of everything we say and do. We don't do things to earn. We don't do things to, 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 to try to get on God's good favor. We do it out of an overflow of understanding the gospel. And that leads to a, a life of worship, a life in community, a life of making disciples, and a life of service. That's what we've been talking about today. We're looking at the gift of community. We grow in grace by growing in community. The word community by community, what do I mean by that? I mean simply 
how we as Christians do life together. That's the simplest definition. How we as Christians do life together. Christian community, this kind of a community, a local church community, is meant to be the most compelling community in the entire world. The most compelling community. Why? Because our community, in other words, our shared life together, is not rooted in our shared interests. We don't all like golf or football or chess. It's not rooted in our stage of life. We're not all 20-somethings, 30-somethings, 60-somethings. It's not rooted in our background. We all look the same. No, just look around. We're a diverse church, aren't we? No, our community is rooted in our shared life in Jesus Christ. Pastor Andrew prayed this earlier. We are united by Jesus Christ. That is what unifies us. The life of Jesus inside of us is deeper and more powerful than anything else in the world. And so we are, that is the basis of our community. How we do life together, and not just together, but together for the gospel. Together for the gospel. There was an interesting article written last month in the Washington Post. It was entitled, Americans are Choosing to Be Alone. Here's how the article begins. Quote, the COVID pandemic, uh, written by an economist, not, not a sociologist, not someone who I, he, he's an economist, and he says this, the, the COVID pandemic wreaked havoc on our social lives. Cancellations, closures, and fear of a potentially deadly infection led us to hunger down and avoid acquaintances, coworkers, and extended family. Time spent with friends went down. Time spent alone went up. We all know that to be the case, right? We all experience that. The author cites a recent study, though, that revealed that since the pandemic, even with all kinds of therapeutics that could help, even with things being more under control, Americans right now are spending 60% less time with friends than they did before. And here's what's most interesting, or most, you know, challenging Instead of spending that time like with spouses or with children or with roommates, people are choosing to spend that time alone. This is this spans all age groups, all demographics. And you say, well, it was just a pandemic, that's why it's skewed. No, the study has shown that even before the pandemic, over the last 10 years since 2014, people were already starting that trend of spending time alone rather than with other people. In fact, before 2014, if you looked at the numbers, people were spending roughly the same amount of time to get with friends as they did all the way back to the 60s and 70s. But 2014 marked a distinct shift in the way we live socially with one another. As a side note, let me just tell you this. Market saturation for smartphones went over 50% in 2014. Something significant has changed in our social lives. Now, some of you may be like, being alone is a good thing. Right? Praise God, it can be therapeutic. And you're right, it can be a good thing. But we have to approach this soberly and ask, is spending that much more time alone healthy for us? More restorative for us? And the answer from many studies, and I would say the answer biblically, is no, it's not. The author submits, kind of in part of his conclusion, it's too soon to know the long-term consequences of this shift. And it, has, it is a shift. 
but it seems safe to assume that the decline of our social lives is a worrisome development. Spending less time with friends is not a best practice by most standards, and it might contribute to other troubling social trends like loneliness, isolation, worsening mental health, particularly among adolescents, rising aggressive behavior, and violent crime. Americans rate activities as more meaningful and joyful with friends are present when friends are present than when they are alone. In fact, friends and social connections build on themselves and produce memories and fellowship. They also boost health and lead to better economic outcomes. End quote. Did you catch that the author probably unknowingly brings up a biblical word? Fellowship. That's the biblical word for community, doing life together. And here's the thing, as humans, beyond, whether you're a Christian here or not, if you're not a Christian, I'm glad you're here. We're glad you want to know. You're curious or you're seeking. You're trying to understand the Bible and Christianity. We're glad you're here. Here's what every one of us needs to understand and embrace, that as humans, we are wired for community. When God created humanity, when he created Adam, he said it's not good for him to be alone, and then he created another human. That's not simply a justification for marriage. It's an indication that our lives were meant to be lived with each other in the presence of others. So today, in this text, I pray that through this message, we will deepen not only our desire, but our commitment to live life in community with other Christians that we can be together for the gospel. Lesson number one, we need one another to live the Christian life. We need one another to live the Christian life. We're reading out of Philippians 1 and 2. Paul is in prison as he writes this letter and he's trying to encourage the church in Philippi about his situation, about his condition, that he's in jail, but it's okay. He, say, he actually says earlier that God is using his imprisonment to further the gospel and then he's reminding them now, church, he turns to them and says, listen, I told you about my situation, but now I need to address your situation and I want to tell you about the power of community. That how we relate to one another, how we love one another, how we serve one another, and how we do life together impacts our witness for Christ. Notice he says, standing firm side by side for the faith of the gospel. What is he saying? Christian community does not inhibit our witness for Christ. It enhances it. Some people might say, a church that focuses on, on how we're doing life together, it can feel so inward focused that we're not focused on the outside, we're not focused on the mission to make disciples. No, 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 no. How we relate to one another as a church does not distract from the miss- mission, it is an essential part of the mission. Does that make sense? Paul answers two questions in these paragraphs. And here's the first one in verses 27 to 30. First question, how should we as a community relate to the world? And his answer is through unity. Look at verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is the big idea of this entire section. The church in Philippi was dealing with an external problem, and that is persecution. And it was real. 
And Paul knew what they were dealing with. He uses the word conflict later. He talks about those who are their opponents in verse 28. They were dealing with a very real struggle with the world who did not like it that they were Christians, who did not like what they believed in, who did not like what they stood for. And they were also dealing with an internal problem and that was their uh, a lack of unity. And Paul is calling us as Christians, he says, no matter the circumstances, live your lives in a manner that is worthy or consistent with the gospel. One way to translate what Paul is saying here is, live in a manner that shows that Christ is your greatest treasure. Live in such a way that it becomes clear to others that the gospel is what you value most. Is that true of you, Christian? Is that true of us, church? That the gospel of Jesus Christ is what we value above all else. Paul is calling Christians here not just to believe certain things, which is important. He's calling us to live a certain way. Notice that? Live in a manner worthy of the gospel. He doesn't just say think things that are worthy of the gospel. Live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Why? Because how we live reveals what we believe. Church, let me ask you, do you believe that Jesus is God incarnate? Do you believe that his death takes away all of our sin and shame? Do you believe that his resurrection changes everything? Do you believe that through faith in Christ, we are credited with the righteousness of Christ and declared sons and daughters of God? And do you believe that the church is the bride of Christ, the only hope for the world, and that empowered by the Spirit, we can go and make disciples of every nation, tribe, and tongue? If we believe that, we should live in a way that is consistent with those beliefs. That's what Paul was saying. This is a command for every Christian, no matter how young or old you are, no matter where your ba- what your background is, live your life in a manner that is consistent with what you believe to be true. Now, what does that look like? This text makes something, one thing, abundantly clear. To live a life worthy of the gospel is to live side by side with other Christians. To do life with other Christians. To live in community. That we need one another to live the Christian life. You cannot live the Christian life alone. There is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. There is no such thing as a Christian who says, I got the Bible. I got Jesus in my heart. I got the Holy Spirit. I don't need anybody else. I'm going to do this thing on my own. You know what? My kids and I were watching a a show with animals and it was like a nature show. We love this kind of stuff. And we're watching these elephants and they're about to cross this, this river and it was flowing and the mama elephant she has she has all these memories of the river and she's like "Mm, no it's 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 going too fast and she waits and like how do they know that and and she's waiting and waiting a day or two she's like all right then now's the time and she's got this little baby elephant with her just a few months old and and it's too small for the water and so she has to wait for the right time and they start crossing and the river starts taking the little baby and the music gets dramatic, and our kids are all like, oh no, oh no, right? And the mama's trying to get to her because she's big enough, but it's, it's going so fast. And what happens? You know what happens? The mama's going after the baby, but all the other family members see what's happening, and they all congregate, and they get behind the baby, and they get front of the baby, and together they move like this, right with the baby in the middle, until they get across the water. And I looked at that, and I was thinking, this is the church, 
This is what we're called to do. Not that you and I are babies, but we have weaknesses. We have struggles. And if we think one person on our own can do life on our own, good luck. You'll never make it. You're a sitting duck. I am pleading with you. Do you believe that you can't live a life worthy of the gospel unless, unless you live a life in community with other Christians? Lesson number two. Trials deepen our unity and dependence on one another. Verse 27, second part. So that whether I come and see you or, an abs- or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Living worthy of the gospel means living in unity. That's what he's saying here, to rely on each other, to support each other as you live out your faith. Paul mentions three ways that we can live consistent with the gospel. Stand together, strive together, and then the next verse, suffer together. Stand together. He says, standing firm. That's the word there. See it in verse 27? Standing firm. This is a military term. It pictures a soldier holding their position on the front lines and not moving, standing their ground. Now, remember this is plural, so don't just think of me standing my ground on my own. No, this is you all standing firm together. You know, if I, I don't want to embarrass you, but I must, I must bring up people, stand together in a line. We stand firm side by side together against the enemy's attacks, against whatever might come our way. We are standing our ground, and if I stand my ground, and Pastor Brady stands his ground, and my son Elijah stands his ground, together we will stand our ground against whatever comes our way, and we will hold each other together. That's what he's saying. It's a military term. He's not using that by accident. He wants us to stand together. It's a powerful picture of what community should look like. We are called to be united. United in what? He says have one spirit and one mind. What does that mean? Are we united in everything? Do we have to agree on every political debate in order to stand as one? Do we have to be united on how to educate our kids? Do we have to be united on what kind of activities to do in retirement? We have all kinds of things that we debate about. No, we don't have to agree on those things. We are to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's what it says. This is what unites us. We are not together for political change. As good as some of those things might be, and we ought to be a part of those, we are not united by political chains. We are not united. We are not together for homeschooling. We're not together for for the commanders. Or, (laughs) I I know that, because I'm a Ravens fan, so we're definitely not together for the commanders. We're not together for political change. We're not together for whatever you love. We're not together for golf. No, we're together for the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ, that's where we're taking our stand. Listen, you like the Chiefs or the Bills or God forbid the Steelers? Fine. Fine. Right, some of you like, or even the, the, the Cowboys? Fine. Well, I know, I know, I know. 
See? See? I'm going to bring up something that you're like, ah, get right next to me, Cowboys guy, ah. Stand firm in one spirit and in one mind. He's saying, to the depths of your soul, you're united in Jesus. We, are keep, aff- we keep affirming one another. And to the world, we keep affirming that our highest allegiance is to the Lord Jesus Christ, to follow his commands no matter the cost. If we do this by interlocking arms together, how could we, listen, how could we possibly live this out? How can we possibly live standing together if we are never or rarely around one another? How can a squadron in the military work in unison if they're all training on their own, but they never train together? How can a team go out and play and do well if they're all training on their own, but they actually never get up together and work together? We're called to stand together. We're also called to strive together, he says. The word here pictures someone competing in an athletic contest. The word athletic is literally in that word. We are to strive for the faith of the gospel. Strive. There's an effort involved. It's the same thing as last week's sermon, train yourself for godliness. But it, now it's, it's taken a step further. It's trained one another in godliness too. Help one another grow in Christ. Help one another share the gospel of Christ. How do we do that? How do we, how do we strive together? We, we grow through classes, through small groups, through support groups, through Bible studies. Look, are you involved in any group here at Grace? In our church family, in your church family? If not, I'm just asking you, why not? Why not? Why aren't you able? What, what, what is in the way? What's inhibiting you from, from striving together, together? I'm not saying you're not striving on your own. I'm saying what is inhibiting you from striving together? Because apart we will be destroyed. But together we can hold our ground. The third way we live consistent with the gospel is to suffer together. Verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. The word granted is the word grace. You have been given two graces, the grace of salvation and the grace of suffering. That's what he's saying here. The gift of salvation and the gift of suffering. But he's saying this is a a testimony, a sign. When Paul says we live together for the gospel, this will be a sign to the world in a negative sense of their destruction, that their eyes of the eyes of their hearts are blinded to the beauty of Christ. It's to show them their blindness and hopefully cause them to, to repent and believe what is true and good and beautiful. Look, when we encourage one another to keep on living with integrity, both at home and at work, when we are praying for one another to withstand whatever accusations or attacks for being a Christian. And when we do so with gentleness and without fear in our hearts, this is a sign of judgment against the world. That you cannot take what is most precious to us. You say, come on, Mark, it's not that bad. You you guys are always saying like there's this battle. Right, the world, Christians against the world. No, I'm not saying that. The Bible says that. We live in a world where something as simple as articulating the Christian understanding of gender can be seen as bullying. 
One of our own high school students, a member of our church, recently shared in a larger group setting that he was having a respectful conversation with a transgender student about Christianity and about how it relates to the biblical view of gender and sexuality. And, and both him and the other student admitted it was a kind and respectful conversation. And there was another Christian as well. And they're dialoguing. They're listening well. They're articulating with respect and, and, and graciously. And yet another student overheard this conversation, went to the principal, and accused this student of bullying. And it led to all kinds of consequences. And they're all in the principal's office. And they're signing forms saying what did and didn't happen. And they're recording it. And all the while, this other student is saying, he wasn't bullying me. What what are we doing here? I'm saying he wasn't, but that person's saying he was. And what's happening here? We're having a healthy conversation. No, when we're standing together, locking arms, not to attack, but to wisely and winsomely hold out the beautiful truths of Christianity. We are called to do that. No matter what people accuse us of, don't be a jerk, I will say that. Be respectful, be kind, but come what may. Paul was in prison, not because he was a jerk, but because he simply shared that Jesus Christ is Lord. It is granted to you not only to believe, but to suffer for his sake. We need one another to help us endure suffering. I could tell story after story of, of, of others of you who've suffered in various ways. We know, those of us who've gone through storms, we know we simply cannot weather the storms or endure criticisms or just run the race that is set before us if we do not have one another to depend on. Church, we need each other, and trials deepen our unity and deepen our dependence on one another. And while that may be vulnerable, it is the plan of God as a witness to the world. And he says, as a sign to you that your salvation is from God. Lesson number three. Unity through humility is the key to true community. In verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2, Paul is answering the second question. How should we as a community relate to one another? He's answering first the question earlier of how should we as a community relate to the world? Now he's saying how should we as a community relate to one another? And his his answer is simple, through humility. If disunity is the greatest threat as we we face as we relate to the world... Right? That the world would kind of get us to, to move apart and we're not unified and it creates holes and, they can atta- and, and the enemy gets in there. That, that's, that's what could, could break us apart as we move together into the world. But what's the greatest threat we face together? It's our own pride and selfishness. That's what he's addressing here. He starts in verse 1 with a series of if statements. If there's any encouragement, if any comfort. And really the way they're, meant to, they're actually meant to be understood as, the, as since. They are all meant to be affirmed. Since there is encouragement in Christ. Since there is comfort from his love. Since there is participation in the spirit. Since there is affection and sympathy from him. Paul is saying, do you find any encouragement from your union with Christ? Is there, any other, is there any greater blessing than knowing Jesus Christ? It, it's, it, this is the foundation of the Christian life. And maybe some of you 
can relate. Have you ever, anyone ever battled discouragement? I've been battling discouragement recently, and I've needed this reminder that, that even in my discouragement, even in our discouragement, through the Holy Spirit, God has the ability to strengthen our hearts, to affirm to us that we are loved, that we are cherished, that we are delighted in. He can do that. There's real encouragement from being in Christ. He says, does, does the love of Christ comfort you? Everything else in life seems to be so up in the air, doesn't it? The economy, your finances, relationships, your mood. But the love of Christ is constant. It never wavers, it never wanes. He's loved you since before you were born, since before the foundation of the world. He chose you and set his love upon you. And you think he's going to quit now? He says, since you know that there's participation in the Spirit, that word participation is the word koinonia. It's the word fellowship. You are joined together by the Spirit. You share in the Spirit. Do you know that? Remember that the Spirit who rose Christ from the dead now lives in you. And then he says, do you know that flowing from Jesus Christ to your heart is this deep affection and sympathy for you, compassion He's reminding us that Jesus is amazingly tender and merciful to us. I love what the Puritan pastor Richard Sibbs wrote. We have this for a foundational truth, that there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Paul says, has the presence of Christ in your life been an encouragement to you? Then here's his point. Then show the same kind of encouragement to others. Has the love of God ever lifted you out of discouragement? Then show the same love to other Christians who are also hurting. You know why? Why do we do this? Because here's what I can almost guarantee, that in part, the encouragement and sympathy and love and affection that you have experienced from God came through other Christians. Right? Have you ever been blessed by other believers? Maybe it was a card or a note uh, at just the right time, maybe it was a more tangible need. You, you needed them to show up, right? You needed them to do something or as a meal or a visit or just a hug, whatever what. Look, I see this all the time at our church. It's amazing what happens throughout the week. Paul says, make my joy complete by doing the same thing for others that God has done for you through others. In other words, live with the same kind of God-honoring unity and self-denying humility. And he says in verse 2, we're to have the same mind, the same love, in full accord, one mind. Again, a link back to verse 27 of chapter 1. We live in a manner worthy of the gospel. He says, unity magnifies the worth of the gospel. We cannot advance the gospel without unity. They're, they're getting this from Jesus. Jesus said, that last time he had with his disciples, after he washed their feet and, and he shared with them the, the Lord's Supper and this institute community, he said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Have you ever thought about how our love for one another in community is actually an apologetic for the authenticity of Christianity? That community demonstrates 
that what the gospel has done in our hearts is the real deal. We're not faking it till we make it. We're not selling you a lie. This is the real deal. Now, why is Paul saying all this? Because unity of heart and mind is admittedly hard to cultivate when you have a group as diverse as this. There's diversity in our cultural backgrounds, in our spiritual backgrounds, in our temperaments, in our, in our preferences, in our age, in our hobbies. So again, when Paul says have the same mind, he's not saying think the same about everything. Should we all like the same music or the same kind of clothes or the same kind of politics? No, that's not what he's saying. This isn't about uniformity. He's talking about us all having the same kind of mindset. In fact, that's what verse 5 clarifies. Let this mindset be in you. Have this mind among yourself, which is, which is the same as in Christ Jesus. It's the mindset rooted in humility. It's the mindset that counts others more significant than yourselves. What will it take for us to live in genuine and selfless community with one another? Verse 3 and 4. Here's what, here's, what, here's what it'll take. Here's what it looks like. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, we don't totally disregard them, but also to the interests of others. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition. Now that's kind of a crazy thing to say because, let's face it, we're almost always making decisions or choices based on what's best for me. Paul flips everything upside down. Basically, he says, do exactly what you think is right. Do exactly what the world tells you how to live. The world would say, your flesh would say, look out for number one. You say, the world doesn't say that. Turn on and listen to the next ad. What is it going to say? Take care of yourself first. Obey your thirst. You know, it's okay. You can drink that drink. I'm just saying, that's not, that's not accurate. This is the mentality that says, unless you take care of your own needs and what you deserve, no one else will. And Paul says, no, that'll kill your joy and it'll destroy our unity. Instead, take care of others first. Serve others first. Selfish ambition is thinking of what you want and how you want it more than what other people need. We do this in our marriages. We do this at work. We do this in church. We're always angling to make sure our needs are met, that, our, that we are recognized, that our interests are being addressed. And Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition. Put it to death. It's destructive anyway. And then he says, conceit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. King James is a more picturesque word. It says, do nothing from vainglory. Empty glory describes those of us who think too highly of ourselves. The idea is that we're making sure others are giving us what we deserve and yet always thinking we deserve better. Paul says, with humility, count others more significant than yourselves. You say, well, well that church member doesn't deserve my service and my love. My, my spouse doesn't deserve my forgiveness. 
My friend doesn't deserve me to give him another chance, give her another chance. We've been friends for a long time. Look what they've done. Look what they said. I'm not sure they deserve it. All right, you want to talk about that? Of course they don't deserve it. Since when are we dealing on the plane of deserve? Do you deserve anything from God? Did God give you what you deserved? Let's back up a minute here. If we got what we deserved, we would all be doomed. All that we've been given in Christ is by sheer grace. No wonder Paul says, yeah, give to others what God has so freely given to you. Notice the word count, verse 3. Count. Calculate. You make a choice to see the needs of others and prioritize their needs because it's the same thing Jesus did for you. He counted your needs, your desires, more important than his own. He prioritized them. Are you looking out for the needs of others? Let me be more practical. Do you know one need that a fellow church member has right now? Whether it's an emotional need, a loss, a burden. Can you, can you name, you know what? This person in our church family has a need. At least you can recognize, I, I'm, I'm counting, I'm thinking about their needs. I'm looking, I'm considering. And then how can I meet those needs? If you ever think, look, stop and think about it. Paul's calling us to humility. Everything in the Christian life is designed to produce deeper humility in you. God's word. It transforms our hearts, right? And so we, what are we called to do? Submit to its teaching. Put ourselves under its authority. That's, that's humility. Prayer. What does prayer remind us? That apart from God, we can do nothing. And so we come, hands wide open. We come dependent on him. Humility. Worship. We gather for worship. We remind ourselves there is someone who's ruling the world with great wisdom and power and authority, and it's not us. And that leads to humility. Trials humble us, reminding us that we live in a broken world that cannot be manipulated to just the right way to get health, wealth, and happiness. And look no further, you can look to the cross. And the cross tells us that we need not an animal, not an angel, not even a fellow human being. We needed the perfect Son of God to die in our place to bring us salvation and eternal life. Christian, you can't enter the Christian life with pride, and you can't continue to live the Christian life with pride. And yet, all cards on the table now, let's be honest. Despite all that I just said, that is meant to humble us, our hearts still struggle to not feel proud. Our default posture is to think highly of ourselves, despite empirical evidence to the contrary. And there's only one remedy to our lack of humility. There's only one way to break the facade that we've put together to make, make it seem like we have it all together, to make it seem like we're okay. One thing that would overcome our tendency to isolate, to spend time alone, to give up time with friends or the community of faith, to just feel like, you know what? I, the, the world has taught me I can't, I can't make it together. I'm just going to make it alone. There's only one way to deep and lasting community that, that, that's brought about by humility. And the remedy to our problem is in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. 
who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you really know and understand what Jesus has done for you and continues to do for you? Paul is saying, you need to go back to this this mindset that it all began with. And it's the mindset of Jesus, that Jesus had it all, didn't he? In eternity past, he had it all. Significance, love, power, intimacy with the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit in this beautiful unity. He had everything we grasp for, everything we long for, but we're afraid we won't get it unless we look out for number one. I'm not going to get significance, so I got to figure out how to get it. I'm not going to get the love I need, so I got to figure out, I got to angle, I need the power, I need the influence, I need the financial security, and then we're grasping, and it's the lack of, that's a lack of humility. humility. What did Jesus do with all that he had? He gave it up. In humility, he came down. He came down looking for you. Why? Because it's not good for man to be alone. He knows that our selfishness is tearing us up. It's tearing others apart. We're so afraid to be truly known in community. We're so afraid to be hurt by others, to be vulnerable and find that others don't actually love us as deeply as we long to be loved. To, 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 they don't think that our perspective matters. Jesus doesn't leave us in that selfishness and our fears. And so what does he do? He takes it all on himself. Whatever you think is your worst nightmare, Jesus took that. Whatever you fear most, rejection, insignificance, being mediocre, shame, guilt, he took it all on the cross. On the cross, our selfishness and pride was transferred to him. He literally became a nobody. He became what we all feared. He was utterly alone, empty of glory, so that in exchange for your sin and shame, he could give you everything that he deserved. Glory, honor, freedom, a love that never fails, significance. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. When you believe he did this for you, it changes you. It puts selfish ambition and conceit to death. That you don't have to be right. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to be significant to others. You don't have to be validated. You don't have to be, to be afraid of getting hurt again. Why? Because look how much God loves you. Can anyone show you who's more important than than anyone else in the world that you matter? Jesus gives you everything your heart longs for so you don't have to go looking for it from others. You have it all. And when you're freed from this, when you're freed from going searching and grasping, you can pursue community with the kind of humility that comes only from Jesus Christ. You can risk doing life with other broken people. 
We can truly be together for the gospel as we go out and bear witness there is a Savior. He rescues, He delivers, He restores. He's the hope for the world. He's the answer to your problems. He's the everything. He's our all in all. We can be a witness to the world that what the gospel can do is He can take a ragtag group of Christians like this. No offense. He takes a ragtag group of people like this and He brings us together and we can do way more together than we can ever do apart. And it's a beautiful witness to one another. When we, when we put our other's interests above our own, it's a beautiful witness to each other that we are children of God. We are siblings. We are family. Look, church, God is doing something special in our midst right now. I can tell you all the ways that I'm, I'm seeing it, that, that your pastors and leaders are seeing it. It's happening. And he is diversifying us in every way possible and yet deepening our unity, sending us out on mission. Lives are being changed. Res restoration is happening. We're hearing of people come to faith in Christ and want to grow. I cannot wait to see what the Lord does this year. And my question to you is, will you let the gospel empower you to seek out community this year? We all need it. You need it. I need it. For the glory of Christ, we can do it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have done everything needed. You have accomplished it all. It is finished. On the cross, you declared, it is finished. So that everything you would command us to do, everything you would call us to do, it seems impossible, Lord. Honestly, Lord, it feels so hard. It seems so far beyond what we could do. And yet when you said it is finished, you were declaring, we will never have to do it on our own. We could never do it in our own strength. That you would give us everything we need. So Lord, our gathering today is an act of faith that you would meet us here, that you would show up in ways and minister your grace in ways that only you can, that you would equip us, unify us, humble us, and that you would fill us with a joy that as we go, we would know. We would know that we know that we know that we are standing and striving and even suffering together because we are together for the gospel. Lord, do a beautiful work in this church family. Continue this beautiful work. We, we are not finished yet. This community still needs a broken, humble people holding out a perfect, beautiful Savior. This world still needs people to go and live among unreached peoples and to declare to them the beautiful gospel. And our hearts still need a reminder each and every day, each and every week that we can endure because we have each other as we look unto Jesus. God, for those who don't know you, I pray at this moment, even in this final song, they would cry out to you that they, would, that they would pray in their hearts, acknowledging they're broken, they're sinful, they need a Savior, and trust in Jesus. Transfer their trust in Christ alone. 
and experience the joy of salvation, the joy of knowing Christ and being known by him. God, do what only you can do. We pray in your mighty name. Amen.